You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 90. little off-season installment. State of the Union on the Nats, some of the changes they're making, and with the playoffs still ongoing. We'll give some quick thoughts on those as well. Plus, Barry Sferluga is going to join us. We're going to ask him if this team's ever going to be sold. He's going to explain why right now it doesn't look like it anytime soon. So that's all coming up on Bustin' Loose Baseball. Bustin' Loose Baseball, hosted by Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer, gives you in-depth analytics and interviews on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Now, here's your host, Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer. This is Boston Loose Baseball, episode 90. I'm Grant Paulson. He's Toby Altizer. Toby, watching these playoff games makes me long for 2019. Feels like it was 20 years ago now. What a run it was. But it does stink to not see the Nationals again in October with all the energy and excitement in these stadiums. It's so crazy seeing Citizens Bank Park just absolutely electric all the time and just missing what they have with... I don't even know the name of the song that they sing, but... Remember Nationals Park with Baby Shark? Like, I miss those times where you just have some song that for no reason, it just all of a sudden becomes a cult classic in a city. That's what I miss. Those sorts of things where no one would listen to Baby Shark in D.C. outside of maybe having kids. But suddenly grown men in their 40s are listening to Baby Shark in D.C. in 2019. I love those sorts of things. And we're not we don't have that right now, but I think we're in the right direction, hopefully. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. Dancing on my own, I think, is the song that everyone's yeah, constantly yeah, yeah. singing, all the Phillies fans. You know, what makes it more interesting, I'd say, though, and really, as a Nationals fan, more compelling is the ex-Nats are all over the place. And it's mostly Philadelphia, obviously. But we did see Max Scherzer come back to pitch in Game 3 for the Rangers last night. Did not go very well, but it was a very Max Scherzer thing for him when he was ruled out for the season to come back ahead of schedule and, and to be able to get the ball in the ALCS. I'm sure he regrets that last night was when he was on the Hill as we taped this podcast after an Astros win to pull to within a game in game three in the ALCS. But I mean, when I'm watching the NLCS and I see Bryce Harper doing big things, I see Trey Turner hitting a bomb and Kyle Schwarber feasting on the Arizona Diamondbacks. It's the former Nats show, man. It is hard not to have some feels. I actually, on my DC show, uh, Grant and Danny was solo this week one day, and I did, took calls for almost an hour interacting with people on you know, whether or not there's any part of them, just a small part of them, that is happy for Bryce Harper as he has some of these great moments in the playoffs because 
you know, and I come at this a little differently, I think, than the average Nats fan. I never really had animus. I've, I've never been upset with Bryce. I think he wanted to be here more than they wanted him to be here. I don't think they offered him anything that he should have taken. I, I didn't think they made him a great offer. And I, I think it's just business. Like, he, he, he was leaving. If the Angels or, or another team out West would have given him what the Phillies did, he would have went there. Uh, but he went to Philadelphia, which stinks. But I don't hold that against him necessarily. The thing that does annoy me about him and has since he left is is all of his like, you know, I sleep in the Liberty Bell. My blanket on my bed is is the is a flag of Philadelphia. The only TV show I've ever watched is Fresh Prince. My, my favorite song ever is the anthem to Fresh Prince. Uh, do you guys know the Roots? I love the Roots. They've always been my favorite band. You know, whatever that crap is, I think is so fake and and pandering, and he loves doing it. So that's annoying to me. But uh, I don't know. I'm happy for Bryce right now. What about you? Yeah, I don't know how I feel about Bryce. It's still funny, but never forget that he started his press conference in Philly by saying he's going to bring a championship back to D.C. So we feel good about that because they did that in 2019. But he, with he Bryce seated, he was right, <laughs> did a great job of it. But I don't know if you've seen this clip. There was a podcast that came out, I believe it was more so a year after he'd left the Nationals. I can't remember the exact timeline, but it was enough for me to kind of change my stance on Bryce. And basically it was... He said that he went down to West Palm, met with the learners. They they talked about the various contract things, and he told his agent, look, let's get this thing done. If they you know, offer what we want, let's stick around. And the offer was so low or had so many deferrals that he was like, they're not taking this seriously, so I'm not either. I'm going to go somewhere else, and I'm going to find something that is more appealing to me, and he ends up in Philadelphia. So I don't necessarily hold anything against Bryce. It just sucks that he plays for the Phillies. I think it is cool to see a former national do well, but at the same time, he's doing well for the Phillies. So I really struggle with that. But at the same point, I'm not going to cheer for him, but I'm not going to be one of the guys that actively boos him when he comes back to Nationals Park. So I think it's somewhere in the middle where it's cool to see a guy dominate in the playoffs and kind of captivate a city like he has. It just sucks that it's Philadelphia. So I like that. I'm going to ask you then my question that tells me really truly how everyone feels that's on the fence, which is from this point until the end of the postseason, you touch the button to decide what Bryce does. And he goes 0 for 20 with 14 strikeouts, or he goes 12 for 20 with six home runs. And I'm going to tell you that in this hypothetical, the Phillies do not win the World Series either way. So it's almost solely a Bryce question. <laughs> see when you threw on that caveat that the Phillies don't win the World Series it makes me consider I'm still going over 20 though all right so I'm going with all the homers and I mean I, I genuinely I think what he's done is amazing he was baseball's LeBron the closest thing we've had he was on the cover of SI because he's hitting you know 514 foot home run at, at the trop or something as a as a 13 year old I think that the fact that he's made good on the promise, on the hype, on what everyone told him he had to be. He, he he had to leave high school early to go get his GED to go to JUCO so he could be the first pick sooner, so he could get to the big league sooner. Like, it never works out, man. That, that's why LeBron, to me, is so amazing. And I'm putting Bryce in the same category. Like, these guys who we just decide their games are on ESPN when they're in high school or whatever, they don't become the greatest players uh, of their era in LeBron's case, maybe the second greatest player ever. And, and LeBron uh, and in Bryce's case, you know, a first ballot, incredible hall of famer who's going to win three or four MVP awards, maybe before it's all set and done. So I just think it's so cool that he made good on that. 
And there is part of me that kind of just appreciates the greatness of it. Uh, that having been said, to your point, I can't possibly be okay with the Phillies winning as a Nats fan. Like, you're going to feel some type of way negatively about that. So it's almost like I, I am happy when he does well, but yet I would like to see them not win the World Series. You already have the Braves since the Nats won winning a title. Do you really want another team in the division to have accomplished what you did? not to mention more recently and with another chance to do it sooner than you. So for all those reasons, uh, I'm rooting against Philadelphia, but I am pro Bryce. I'd say more. Well, than probably the average person listening to the pod. And the cool thing about Bryce Harper is how well he does in the big moments. Like it seemed like every single opening day when he was wearing a curly W, he went yard even in the playoff series where he was with the nationals, it seemed like everyone else was cold and then Bryce Harper would go yard. You know, it seemed like no matter what the big moment was, Bryce Harper was up for it. And now you're seeing it in Philadelphia. I mean, just the, the, the scenes at the, the, the bank last year where he hits that home run and you just hear the crowd go crazy. And even the home runs he's had this year and the big moments he's had this year, like, it seems like no moment is too big for him. Like you said, he ha came in with sky-high expectations, and he lives up to it and in some ways has gone past those expectations. So it's it's incredible to watch. And, you know, if you're just an outsider, I understand if you don't necessarily love him because of the attitude or whatever the case may be. I get that he's maybe really polarizing and some people don't like him. But you have to admire how incredible of a player he is and how much he lives up to these moments and really can put the team on his back and carry him in the postseason at times. Yeah, and I won't say who said this. I'll just tell you that somebody who's high-ranking uh, wasn't Mike Rizzo, uh, extremely high-ranking with the Nationals at the time. Um, when they didn't keep Bryce Harper, the day of the Patrick Corbin press conference, I was asking them about, I was like, so I guess Bryce isn't coming back. And they said, yeah, but you know, you know, we, we kind of knew that and we've been planning on that. And they said, we just we don't think he ever comes up with clutch hits. You know, they're like, name one time he's ever gotten a clutch hit. And it wasn't really a situation where I'm supposed to be like arguing or countering this person that I'm not supposed to really go back and forth with. But in my mind, I'm going, what a terrible take. You know, like you mean like the homer against the Cubs in the playoffs or yeah. homering on opening day every year or the fact that in the Giants 2014 playoff series when nobody hit, he had three home runs, you know, was like the offense. Yeah, it was the entire. And I was just like, what a this person's largely responsible for this decision. And I thought that the take was so bad. And they're like, yeah, but he, it's a lot of singles and he hits homers in games that are out of reach or whatever. And I was like, all right, this is like you're breaking up with someone and you're just making it work in your head you know like yeah like yeah but i didn't like her earlobes and you're like dude she was very attractive and very funny and very sweet and wonderful and you're like yeah but she had this laugh every now on thursdays like every other week where you know after 9 p.m she made a weird sound and you're like all right dude wh whatever it takes to, to go to bed tonight and make <laughs> you feel better about yourself but i just i like your point's so true he has been so i don't know if i believe in the idea of clutch like, he has been awesome in the playoffs. He has been great in big spots, clearly. And I think that goes back to his time with the Nats, but uh, I digress. So I, I ask you this then, Toby. The Rangers are up 2-1. The Phillies are up 2-0. Series shift in Arizona. What is your prediction for the World Series matchup and winner? And what do you want to see? World Series matchup and winner. Well, what I want to see is I want to see Rangers and D-backs. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think the Rangers... 
it's so tough because you lose game three. You could have obviously put a stranglehold on it. Houston is so experienced, so it's so tough to just count them out. But I think the Rangers can get it done just because of the fact that they got two in Houston early on. But we've seen with the Nationals in the World Series, just because you win a couple on the on the road or and you feel like you're in a good spot, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So I think the Rangers can still get it done in the ALCS and the NLCS. I think the Diamondbacks are still just too young. I think the Phillies are a juggernaut right now with that offense. And when you've got guys like Zach Wheeler pitching so well, I think it's really tough to beat the Phils. So I'm going to go Rangers-Phillies in the World Series. And when it gets there, I don't know, man. I mean, it, it could go either way because the Rangers can go toe-to-toe with that Phillies offense. But at the same point, will they be able to match the pitching? But then you got a guy like Jordan Montgomery that's out there and his nails in the postseason so far. I'm going to still hope that it's the Rangers, and I'm going to say the Rangers, but I would not be surprised if the Phillies get it done this year. Yeah, so first of all, the Rangers and Phillies would be a great matchup. I don't know why. I've got I've got like a tingle that the Astros are going to come back and win the series. So I'm going to say Houston and Philly again from last year, and I will say Philly wins this time. Uh, that's my prediction. What I want is... Rangers Diamondbacks <laughs> like you. I mean, in the rest of America, not in Houston or Philly, probably. But uh, yeah, I, I I know the Diamondbacks are cooked. I knew they were cooked before the series started. Yeah. I mean, they, they were on a heater. You know, this is a team that didn't hit for a lot of power. Hard hit rate was bottom of the league all season. Then it were 14.4% tied with the Phillies for best in the playoffs, hitting a ton of home runs. You know, you get a few days off. You knew that wouldn't sustain. So, Maybe they come back and they make this thing a series and, and that would super, be super impressive. But uh, I would be very, very surprised. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bang, zoom. All right, some Nats things to tend to before we get to Barry's for Luga for an update on whether or not the learners are going to sell. And he's going to make the case as to essentially why they may not. Uh, you'll hear that coming up in a few. Lane Thomas was named a gold glove finalist. What do you think of that? It's awesome. I mean, this is a guy we talked about when we went through our report card. I mean, this is a guy that deserves an A because compared to expectations, you didn't expect much. I mean, this is a guy coming into the year. We talked about being a fourth outfielder. Now he's a gold glove finalist. I don't expect him to win it going up against Mookie Betts and Fernando Tatis, but at the same point, just to be in that consideration. And then what he did at the plate as well, I think is spectacular. This is a guy that could play everyday right field for you if you need him to. And so I think it's well-deserved that he gets this recognition. He didn't, 
get an all-star nod, even though we think he deserved it. But to get the nod as a gold glove finalist, I think makes up for it. Yeah, I agree with you. This is a huge deal for a guy who was basically scratching and clawing to be a big league regular as recently as a year ago, right? I mean, he came into this season having been the organizational player of the year last year. And I think I read a story where Jesse Doherty sat down with him and his wife late in the season. You know, it really wasn't until the all-star break this year where I think he took a deep breath and said, okay, like I'm, I'm a big league starter every day. They're not going to bench me if I have a bad couple of days. And, you know, to, to live that way for so many years, you know, upper minors, majors now being 28 before you can really feel like, all right, I, I've carved this thing out. I'm going to be in the big leagues is, is high stress and anxiety inducing. And, and he's battled through it to now have uh, some some star power to him, which is really, really cool. Um, specific to winning the award. I think he had a better year defensively than Mookie Betts did, in my opinion. Um, I don't think he had a better year than Fernando Tatis did. Uh, just looking up the easiest, most available defensive metric. So this doesn't mean this is the end-all, be-all. But uh, Baseball Savant provides what they call uh, value, run value as a hitter, base runner, and fielder. And his fielding run value was 67th percentile. Mookie Betts' was 27th, and Fernando Tatis's was 96th. And they calibrate that based on some things like range, arm value, and arm strength. So Lane Thomas, the calling card, and this won't surprise Nats fans, is his arm. Uh, he had the second most or may have been tied at the end for most outfield assists. I'm not sure, but he had you know, closer to 20 than 15 outfield assists this year. It was amazing. His arm value is 97th percentile, and his arm strength is 96th percentile. Clocked on average about 93.4 miles an hour on his throws from the outfield. The problem for him is that his range is 21st percentile. And so anecdotally, when we heard that he was a finalist, I was a little surprised because I'm like, man, I, I don't know that he gets to as many balls as like the great right fielders in baseball. But when you have that many outfield assists, <clears throat> excuse me, your arm is that accurate and strong. And it's it's a calling card. So it carried him into the, the conversation deservedly. So, I think, because it's, a, you know, that many outfield assists close to 20 in a season is that's a game changer, man. That I mean, the amount of work you've put in to save your staff is pretty incredible. Um, I'll continue with the metrics for Mookie and Fernando, but any reaction, any of that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the arm, and you can start counting the outfield assists, but I think the bigger impact, obviously, is how many guys don't run after you start seeing some of those things. Great. And, you know, first to third, he's holding guys at second. And the thing that's really nice about Lane Thomas's arm is it's not a wild one. He's very accurate with it. I mean, there were times when you'd be sitting in the press box and he'd uncork a throw just to hold a guy at second, and that would hit the third baseman right in the chest. I mean, it was never something where it was wild all over the place. He keeps it, you know, from going awry, so that way you're not giving up extra bases with errors or, you know, he's throwing it off target so guys can advance. He's always accurate with the baseball as well, so I think the arm deserves it. I don't know if I would consider him a gold glover because of the range, like you were saying. And it's kind of funny to see Mookie Betts down there in the 27th percentile because I always consider him as one of the best right fielders in baseball with his range and his ability. But I think Fernando is probably going to win it just because of his ability to, I mean, he's a shortstop, he's a freak athlete, and he moves to right field, and all of a sudden he's a gold glover out there with his yeah. arm and his ability to range. So I think he'll ultimately win it, but 
it's a really cool nod for Lane Thomas. Totally. The metrics on Mookie, by the way, because I would have thought the same thing. I mean, he covers ground. He's just outstanding and right. Anecdotally speaking, and the reason he has a chance to win the award, probably, uh, these things are, are voted on, right? I mean, the, when you think who's the best defensive right fielder in the game, he's one of the first guys that comes to mind. His range this year was 16th percentile. His arm value was 59th, and his arm strength was 73rd. So in terms of the two arm categories, Lane outdid him. In terms of Fernando Tatis, there really wasn't a weakness. 94th percentile range, 94th percentile arm value, 99th percentile arm strength, which is why the the you know the fielding run value, the FRV, uh, was so high for him, uh, according to baseball savant. But fingers crossed, Lane Thomas uh, gets some love here, uh, you know, as much. Every amount of uh, mention and interest that he gets in this is, is probably a good thing in boosting the Q rating overall. And it's one of those things where, as you said, it's it's just good to be included uh, for the moment. Nationals have some prospects in the Arizona Fall League right now. Uh, Robert Hassel is getting an opportunity to participate and to take part in the Fall League, which I think is a good thing. I mean, he had gotten hot right at the end of the minor league season, so it kind of felt like it was going to be a shame that his season was ending after one of his best week-and-a-half stretches. So they decided to send him out to the AFL. He'll be primed in the spring to compete with the big leaguers, and hopefully, you know, after some AAA time, uh, they might be able to get him into, um, you know, the big leagues a month or so into next season. But he's the headliner of their fall league class. Yeah, I mean, for him, it's just, can you find a way to get out of this funk that really it seems like he's been in all year long? He's had stretches where he looked like a little bit of the guy that you traded for. Then you've seen long stretches where it just didn't make any sense because if there was one thing that you could count on in the Soto trade, it was that Robert Hassel was going to have a high hit tool. And for whatever reason, that hadn't been the case this year. So hopefully he can continue to find a way to just get base hits because I don't ever see him being a huge difference maker at the major league level, but you know, a solid seven hitter on a good ball club that plays good in the outfield is very valuable. And I think that's what the nationals thought they were getting in Robert Hassel, a guy that they could definitely depend on. So if he can find a way to just get back to that, then you throw him in the outfield with Cruz and wood and hopefully Elijah green in the future and figure some places for him to play. I think he can still be a solid player for this team and, you know, he got hot at the end, like you were saying. So it felt like, oh, man, this is going to go to waste. But hits in his nine of his first 10 games in the Arizona Fall League. So it's good to see that he's maybe finding something that he can carry over into next year. Yeah, he had a big home run last night, as did Israel Pineda, by the way. Both of the Nats, uh, better hitting prospects. Homered last evening. Hassel had a walk-off hit earlier this week as well. Uh, I think you're right. Like when he was initially acquired, he was seen as the safest of those prospects, which is kind of interesting to think about now. But my expectation, everything I'd been told since he was drafted was, as you said, this isn't a star, but this is a solid major leaguer. He's going to hit 275 with 20 home runs and probably steal 15 or 20 bases every single year. And while I still think that he might be able to eventually steal those bases and, and who knows, maybe hit 275 as well. I have not seen anywhere near, you know, 20 homer power from him. That would be one of the things that I would say is not happening. I, I will admit that <clears throat> teams bake in a little more power when guys get to the majors now, not only because of the baseballs, which are only used in AAA and not at the levels Hassel's been at, uh, but 
because of, um, you know, the, the velocity of pitching guys being in the strike zone more routinely, like some of the things that actually benefit you. And so I remember talking to someone about uh, Jacob Young and I was like, do you think he could hit 10 to 15 home runs in the majors? And uh, and their point was, well, yeah, if he plays 150 times, he will. They're like, there's really nobody anymore. There might be a guy or two in the big leagues. But for the most part, if you get 500 at bats in the major leagues with those baseballs and the way ballparks are built now, like you're going to hit 10, 12 home runs. And it used to be that a guy like Juan Pierre or somebody might only hit two or three in a season. But things have changed, and it's it's a little easier to hit home runs now. And then it's just a matter of, are you good enough to get the at-bats? So if you're a great defender and a speed guy and, and you're playing because of that, then it, you know if you're a four, five, six home run guy in the minors, you probably end up being a, an eight or nine home run guy, 10 home run guy in the big league. So you know if Hassel gets there, I would imagine some of the numbers tick up a bit um, eventually. It doesn't mean right away because the competition's obviously stiffer and harder and it, it's harder to succeed. But just in terms of a lot of dead fly balls and double A might go over the fence with the baseballs and, and the big leagues. Um, you sometimes will see that uptick when guys get to triple A as well. But um, some of the Nats will benefit from that this coming season uh, for sure. All right. One thing I wanted to hit on with you is the shakeup to the staff that we've seen before we get to Barry Sverluga. And we drilled on on that with him in just a couple of moments. Um, the, the big move that's been made as far as I'm concerned. So. We talked on the pod not long ago about the fact that they brought in Danny Haas, who's going to run, uh, essentially co-run a couple departments for them. He was hired as uh, the new scouting director. Uh, I love the hire this week or this past week of Brad Selick from the Orioles. He has run their drafts. Uh, he has had immense success with Baltimore's drafts. They don't really miss. It's an ultra-savvy analytical place where – you know, I think they got the best GM in, in all of sports right now in Mike Elias, and they got a, a, a cheat code in Sig Meidel, who's his right-hand man, who's a rocket scientist with, you know, passing out pamphlets on numbers a bunch of years ago to get a job. And then he went to the Astros and built what he did, and, and now with the Orioles is doing the same thing. Uh, so Selick's been around those guys, kind of absorbing and learning in, in the best kitchen. And as a sous chef, you're bringing him over now to help run a big part of your department. I thought that was a hell of a hire for the Nationals. I'm really, really excited. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how it changes things for the Nationals. You hear in our conversation with Barry Sverluga, he brings up the idea that, you know, now the Nationals get a look inside the kitchen and see what ingredients they like to use. Basically, what numbers are they looking at to project into future big leaguers? Because we've seen it with the Orioles now, obviously, Adley Rutschman and Jackson Holiday were number one overall picks, but Gunnar Henderson looks like he could be an MVP type player, and they got him in the second round. You know, those kinds of guys, how do they find them? How do they identify them? How do they have the best system in all of baseball now? They bring that over to the Nationals, or at least a little bit of that, and it gives you some encouragement because the Nationals, you know, they went through a long stretch where it was basically a throwaway in the draft, and maybe you find one guy, which shouldn't be the case, but it was the case for the Nationals for a long time. So now if you can start building that system and i think the most encouraging thing at least you would hope going forward washington's a bigger market than baltimore you would hope that at some point down the road it doesn't all have to be prospects because the the thing that a lot of baltimore orioles fans are worried about is oh can we keep the guys or oh shoot we get to free agency they're not going to spend anything you look at the trade deadline like their prized possession was jack flaherty like the nationals you would hope at some point can build things and then if they look at it, they say, oh, we can go sign a Max Scherzer again. Oh, we can go sign someone 
to help out in the outfield or at first base or something like that. That's what you would hope. So I think the Nationals have an opportunity now. You bring in a guy from the Orioles who has built a stellar farm system. If you can combine a stellar farm system with hopefully the ability to spend some money, I think you've got a you're you're well on your way to hopefully repeating 2019 or at least getting back to that sort of run that the Nationals had from 2012 to 2019. Long gone. For more on how we got here, that the Nats were making so many changes, let's get to our conversation with Barry Sverluga. And we are joined by our buddy Barry Sverluga on Boston Loose Baseball. Barry, what do you make of the offseason of kind of turmoil to this point? It started with a lot of people losing jobs, moving on from folks. We didn't know who would be replaced. And they have made some big moves now, including bringing over uh, a person who's responsible for a lot of the drafts the Orioles have had. Where are you at on some of the things they're doing? I kind of think it was a necessary reset. Um, and if you go back to the Nationals drafts, and you can have the, the chicken and egg discussion of, is this a draft problem or is it a player development problem? And that's, you know, a, a baseball truism. Almost every franchise has that issue at some point. But the last player that this franchise really drafted and developed um, to become an impact big leaguer was Anthony Rendon with the sixth pick in, in 2011. And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, that did they um, not have first round picks some years because they signed free agents? Yes. But they also didn't hit on guys in the fourth round. You know, there's no Spencer Strider. There's no Michael Harris second. Like there's, there's not a player that they, that really impacted them in a positive way over more than a decade. Um, Chris Klein, who is someone I've known a long time. Um, he's Mike Rizzo's, minor league roommate uh, and teammate in, in a ball um, and has run those drafts. A lot of them really successfully before that uh, is a, a, an old school scout. And I think what this move does in bringing in Danny Haas um, who people around the league have said, whoa, that's a good hire. Um, I think it makes that room younger and a little more process oriented than the old school, you know, Mike Rizzo is an old school scout too. He loves the eye test. He believes in scouting that way. But I think that this is an acknowledgement that um, the process needed updating um, because, you know, whatever you think of that old school process, it wasn't yielding results for this franchise. And you had mentioned a reset of the front office and some of the, the people that were fired and bringing in new blood for that. Is that what you view this as, as just something where they're maybe changing philosophy, trying to update things and bring in some fresh eyes? Or is this something where some of the scouts maybe won't get brought back? Is this a downsizing of sorts? Well, I think it's both. I think it's a, um, a streamlining and, you know, where the learners are involved, you, you always wonder, is this straight cost cutting? Um, I think, it shows the fact that they made outside hires at those top two amateur scouting positions, uh, one from the Diamondbacks, one from the Orioles, um, that it's it's not just a, we're going to do more with less. Um, I don't think they'll have the same uh, level of pro scouts. Some, some of the longtime old guys that uh, hung out with Rizzo and Rizzo like to have around as, as sounding boards won't be brought back. I do think there's a little bit of a, a cost, um, you know, a, a budget 
issue, but I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing in this case. And I'm not trying to stand up for, for their, um, you know, for the way they, they view spending. Um, but I, I, I really believe that this, that front office needed fresh eyes. It's very, they haven't brought in a lot of people from other organizations in, in recent years. Um, a lot of familiar faces who have been there a long time are still there and that's not bad, but I, I think given the results um, in the, in draft, in the draft and in player development, um, I think it was, it's fair to say like, let's try something new. I'm really excited about Brad Selick, who they brought over from the Orioles who, who ran Baltimore's drafts. I would just poach as many people from Mike Elias's staff as possible. I mean, we've talked a lot, Barry, and we've had you on G&D and on this show, and we've referenced for years their draft history. You've written about it a ton. That guy has been a part of a factory that has done something that, frankly, I'm not sure any team's ever done in terms of churning out prospects over the last few years. They're going to have a third straight season starting with another number one prospect in every top 100. Uh, what what a coup that is for them. I, am I missing something? I feel like that's huge. No, I think it's absolutely huge, Grant. And I think um, it's important to note that the the Orioles core, it involves some, you know, one ones in, in um, Ashley Rushman and, and you know, Jackson Holiday on the way. But, you know, Gunnar Henderson wasn't a first yeah, I guess technically wasn't a first round pick. Like they, they have drafted and found players in all man, all kinds of ways. And, and that's what the Nationals have, have not done. I mean, if, if the Nats hadn't made the um, Soto trade, which really, really reinvigorated their, their system, um, you're, you're looking at a very, very thin minor league uh, system. And, and now, I think just in talking with people there over the years, a little bit of the frustration um, with the, the results in the draft was that it was not clear kind of what the, the process was. Like, what did, what did they, were they, you know, hanging everything on velocity or exit velocity? Or what, what, what metrics were they looking at that they were like, we, we like this in players? And I think with, the new hierarchy there, I don't know what the metrics will be, but I think there will be, this is the kind of player, this is the profile that fits what we want. Go find these players. I, th I think it'll be much more kind of understandable, linear, organized. Um, and, and you would think that that process would lead to better results. That's a great point. That, like, what is their identity developmentally? It's really interesting. Uh, Barry Sverluga with this on BLB. So I don't know if this matters, and maybe that'll be your answer, but I am fascinated by why did they do all this now? Did, did, do you think the learners to keep Mike Rizzo essentially said, we're going to do this? Or do you think Rizzo kind of decided at some point along the way for the first time in a long, long time, hey, we need to change a lot of things? Like, how did we get here? I think both can be true. And I do think, you know, Rizzo believed, at least in the amateur scouting um, world, that, that that job is a younger man's job now. Uh, as I mentioned, Klein, minor league teammate with Rizzo, they're both like in their early 60s. That is a job. I mean, I, I spent time on the road with Chris Klein years ago, um, and I was there for like four days 
jump from the SEC tournament to the ACC tournament, taking early morning flights, struggling through the night. You know, uh, four days wore me out. Um, and and those guys do that for months at a time. Um, you know, between the early part of college practices in in January, right through the draft, which is now in in July. Um, so I think kind of a re-energizing there is is a Rizzo initiative. Um, and with Johnny DePuglia uh, in the international side, who you know is famous for signing Juan Soto and Victor Robles and and others. Um, I think that was a, you know, it, that had kind of played its course. The, the Dominican um, program, the, the uh, minor league teams, the team over there was kind of in disarray. They had a terrible record. Um, and I, I, I just think it's, you know, Theo Epstein is famous for saying, uh, t- taking that old Bill Walsh phrase, saying like, after you've done something for 10 years, it's, it's time for a change. And I think there's an element of, of that here now. I don't want to ignore the fact that the learners are very, the learners still on the team. Um, even though I firmly believe that they want to sell it for the right price. Um, and, but as long as they own it, they're very conscious of what they're spending and what they're spending it on. So I do think that there's a kind of a hybrid thing here where, where Mike Rizzo independent of anything from ownership um, felt like we've got to make some changes um, but also, uh, I think at the same time, it can be true that ownership can come in from the side and say, hey, uh, we got to cut, cut some costs here. Yeah. And with Mike Rizzo, we, we were advocates to keep him around. Obviously, he's a World Series winning general manager, but ultimately deciding that he wants to maybe go a new school approach. How approach? How would you see that? How do we tangibly know that they're kind of putting in more analytics? Is it something as simple as, you know, down the line, we're seeing more prospects in the national system, or is it something that we'll be able to tangibly see over the next couple of years? Well, it better result in, in more prospects and, and more consistent drafts. I mean, that's what this is, this is all about. I mean, they, you know, this off season is not the off season that they invested in analytics. I and mean, they, they have built their own um, system over the years, uh, just like every, you know, front office has, I, I think because Rizzo is and was a scout and loves scouts, um, the Nats get branded as just like, we only do things the, the scout way. And I, I just, I don't think that's, that's true. They have, I think it's 19 people in the an- analytics department. I might be slightly off on that. What do we use those people and the, the um, equipment that they've invested in over the last several years? What do we use them for? What's the end game here? So I'm not going to pretend to know the ins and outs of, of what their mechanism looks like, but we can all see what the results have been. And that is not producing impact big leaguers either for this roster or that can be used in trade to get impact big, big leaguers. Um, so I think the way that it manifests itself is if if in three years they have stacked some drafts up and i think the last couple drafts have been better in in fairness um but if they've stacked some drafts up that you know they don't have to make a soto trade that they now have the inventory to do what mike rizzo always did at the trade deadline when they were good is you know go fix the bullpen go get as dribble carrera go get um mark melanson like have the players that other teams will want in your system so that you can improve your major league roster on the fly
Yeah, and you had mentioned ownership in there as well. What is the update on that? Because it seems like we were hearing a lot of that last offseason. Is that something we're going to hear again this offseason, or is it something that's died down until we really see that maybe Leonsis is upping his offer? What's the update on ownership? Well, there's really only one candidate to buy, and that's Ted Leonsis. And my understanding is he's still very, very interested. But I'm sure, you know, Grant, we've talked about this before. Like, what do we know about the learners? Like, they determine what they think the cost of something is, the value of something is. And if they think uh, the value is 10 and you offer 9.99999, like they don't, they don't take it. So, I, I mean, Nationals Park is named Nationals Park because they determine what they think the value of naming rights deal would be. They have not received that value. And so, so they decide that zero is better than whatever the value they were offered is. So um, the difference between this offseason and last offseason is that you're not, unless somebody comes out of left field, which is always possible, you're, you're not dealing with, okay, are there five or six bidders in, in line here? It's either Ted Leonsis or the learners will own the team in 2024. Barry, thank you as always. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Barry Sverluga of the Washington Post on Boston Loose Baseball. Tone, any final thoughts? Yeah, so I was thinking of this comparison, Grant, uh, for one of the Nationals' top prospects, Brady House. I'm curious, just off the top of your head, who do you think my comparison or who would your player comp be? Ooh, okay. Um, I haven't thought. I, I'd have to give that more thought. I, okay. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I'll give you mine. And I thought maybe I'm a little crazy on this, but then I looked at some numbers and it's very similar. And I mentioned earlier, Gunnar Henderson. They're very similar players to me. And listen to these because it's kind of freaky. So Gunnar Henderson debuted at just over two months after his 21st birthday. Brady House is going to turn 21 June 4th of next year. That would mean August 6th debut next year. In his age 20 season for Gunnar Henderson, he spent his time at A-ball, a plus ball and double A. Brady House this past year is age 20 season, spent time at A ball, A plus ball, double A. Stats comparison for those guys. Henderson spent 105 games in his age 20 season, 463 at bats, 103 hits, 32 triples and doubles, 17 homers, 74 RBIs, a 258, 350, 476 uh, slash line, 826 OPS. For Brady House, very similar stuff. 106 hits compared to 103 and 374 plate appearances. He had 24 doubles and triples, 12 homers, 47 RBIs. He had a better batting average at 312 compared to 258. Better on base, 365 compared to 350. And better slug, 497 compared to 476 for Gunnar Henderson. Mm. That's a so. And he spent more time at double-A than Gunner did at double-A. Gunner only got to double-A for five games in his age 20 season. Brady House spent 36 games there. And so I was like, okay, stats comparisons are similar. Listen to how MLB Pipeline had their tools graded after their age 20 season. Gunner Henderson, overall 55, hit 55, power 60, run 50, arm 60, field 50. Exact same thing for Brady House right now. The huh. exact same. And so I think if you're looking at guys, and I've said this before, I'm not much of a hot take guy, Grant, but if I had to bet on one guy becoming a star for the Nationals out of the national system, James Wood has a sky-high ceiling. Dylan Cruz 
looks like about as sure a thing as you can find. I'm going with Brady House. I think he's going to be spectacular. Love it. Fascinating juxtaposition with those numbers there is pretty good. I mean, House's size, he's just so big. He's listed 6'3", 215. And I get is is I guess Gunner is probably similar. I've interviewed both and stood next to both. I don't remember being as taken aback with how big Gunner Henderson is. Um, having said that, they're both big, strong, 215, 220-pound guys. They're listed about the same, to your point. Gunnar Henderson listed at 6'3", same as House. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really interesting. And, I mean, and, for, and for me, the thing with Brady House is you didn't see as much power this year compared to what Gunnar showed at that age, but I'm not worried about power at all. I think that Gunnar has maybe a little bit more speed, and he can play shortstop and third base, and I don't see Brady House playing shortstop and third base in the big leagues, but I think that Brady House is a guy that can project to be – Maybe not an MVP level, but very close. And maybe he can get to that point because I think he can hit 30, 35 home runs, drive in 100 every single year. And he's shown, even at this young age, going up levels. I think at double A, he hit over 300 this year. Like, this is a guy that can hit for average. He can hit for power. He's got all of the tools. And so that's why, you know, there's little bits and pieces that you're worried about with some of the other guys. And for me, with Brady House, I just don't know that there are any. The only thing for him would be, injury concerns but when he's been healthy in the national system he's hit and so if you can keep him healthy keep him progressing i think he could be an absolute star i love it uh we are looking for ideas for the off season things you guys want us with some extra time now to take deep dives into you can tweet toby at toby underscore altizer i'm at grant h paulson you can of course just leave comments that's always very easy on on the uh, pause that you listen to as well. Uh, next up in our schedule is a deep dive into the system and going player by player and breaking down the seasons that everybody had. But if there are things you'd like to hear us talk about or people you'd like to hear on the podcast, please uh, let us know and we will effort to make that happen as we're going to be keeping the pod going throughout the off season with at least, uh, I guess, one pot a week. And then if news breaks, we will uh, get you more on the Nationals. For producer Darris and Toby, I'm Grant saying so long. Until next time, this has been Bustin' Loose Baseball.